Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. Good evening, buddy. Good evening, buddy. Jeez Louise. Good evening, everybody. I'm David Berner. I'm one of the pastors here at Knox Presbyterian Church. Welcome back to uh, our Long Story Short class. We're so glad all of you are with us. Um, we're um, going to dive in and start talking about the book of Deuteronomy tonight. We're on week six of this class, and the theme is waiting. Most of the texts that uh, were assigned for this week are from Deuteronomy, so we're going to take a close look at that. Before we do that, let me start us off with a word of prayer. Good and gracious God, our Father in heaven, thank you so much for gathering us here this evening. I give thanks for those who have set aside time in their busy lives to come and to study your word, to learn more about it. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us more and more about um, your word, your will, your way, and your son through the study of your scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so welcome back. I'm glad all of you found your way back after a a hiatus. Um, I forgot to send out a reminder email, so it's even more impressive because we were off for two weeks and I didn't remind you, so you still found your way back, which is very good. Um, Let's see, I don't have any items for housekeeping. So um, as I said, we're focused on week six today, which is waiting. Let me start by asking this question. So how many of you prior to this week were familiar with the book of Deuteronomy? I see three hands, but it's safe to say there are many more hands not raised than raised. I think that tracks with my expectations and certainly my own experience. There are some books of the Bible I know really well from front to back. Um, Deuteronomy is not one of those, although I am increasingly fond of it. In previous weeks, we have often focused on one particular text We've done that thing where we do a deep dive into one text and talk a little bit more about it. We're not gonna do that tonight. So because Deuteronomy is a little more unfamiliar to us, I think it's helpful to have a little bit more of a high level overview. So what we're gonna do is focus a little bit more on the main themes and the structure of it, and then we'll drill down a little bit more to look at particular passages. Before we do that, let's retrace our steps. So uh, at the end of week five, we'd made it to Exodus 19 and 20. That's of course the story of God giving the covenant to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. He gives the 10 commandments. Um, That's a story you almost can't help but be familiar with in America today, even if it's just through dim memories of Charlton Heston on your mom and dad's TV screen, right? Who can help us remember what happens in Exodus after chapters 19 and 20? What's the content of that second part of the book after chapters 19 and 20? Is that when they made a false idol and worshiped it and Moses came down and smashed the... Absolutely, yes. Yep, that happens, I think, in Exodus 33. So there's, a, there's that very powerful and compelling story. Um, what other sorts of material comes in the second half of Exodus? Instructions for building the tabernacle. Yes. So there's a lot of instructions for building the tabernacle in the second half of Exodus. The tabernacle is the place where worship will occur. 
and it's very detailed. If you look at it, there's a lot of, you know, make sure the lampstands are made of this kind of wood and make sure they're this length and make sure they have four corners and not three. Um, it's very detailed. So, uh, yeah, does anyone want to add anything to what happens in the second half of Exodus? So they do send people to look into the promised land. I don't believe that happens in the second half of Exodus. I might be wrong. Uh, um, it does happen in um, some of the readings from Deuteronomy and again in Joshua. So we're going to get to that pretty soon, even if it doesn't happen in Exodus. So one of the things that's interesting to me about Exodus is it's you basically, in the middle of it, you get a hard right turn in the genre of Exodus. And here's what I mean by that. So before chapters 19 and 20 in Exodus, Exodus is primarily a narrative. It's primarily a story. It's an incredibly compelling, tightly crafted story about Moses leading the Israelites to freedom in Egypt, out of Egypt. And it works perfectly, it's absolutely riveting, it's amazing. After chapters 19 and 20, the genre of Exodus changes from narrative to law. From narrative to law. So it mostly stops telling us the story of Moses and his people, and mostly starts spelling out the law for God's people. We'll talk more about what that means in a little bit. That word law is a very important one. So you get the sorts of things that Kim suggested well, just a moment ago. Instructions for worship, the building of the tabernacle, the vestments of priests. So got to remember uh, the Old Testament envisions an active order of priests who have very important duties. They need to wear the right kind of clothes. They need to sacrifice the right kind of animals. They need to be scrupulous about all these details. And they're all spelled out. And I guess I just want to point out, this is significant because it has, um, it has a lot to do with what we should expect and look for when we're reading the Bible. So the, the Bible has a ton of different genres. So Psalms is poetry. Um, Genesis is narrative stories, and then you get this third kind of genre called law, which is mostly commandments. And if you're, you know, Exodus is tricky because you, it's half and half, right? It's half story and half law. So if you're looking for it to be the, whole, the story all the way through, you're going to get to Exodus 20 and think, this is amazing. I've never read anything like this. And then you'll get to Exodus 24 and you'll be like, what's happening? Right? Um, so, tracking that difference in genre is really important. Are you all with me so far? Anybody need to ask a question? Does the Ten Commandments count for the narrative of the law? Do the Ten Commandments count for, the, are they narrative or are they law? I think they're a little bit of both. They're sort of the hinge between the two because the climax of that story in Exodus 20 is Moses delivering the law to Israel. And so it's a natural setup after that to say, here's, here's a bunch of other instruction we received from the Lord. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that's interesting, right, is that um, 
Yeah, part of the intention of the law is to give structure and order and discipline to a people. And certainly the, yeah, we can imagine that at that point in the biblical story, the Israelites didn't have that. Um, and that the, the, wills, the will and the directive of God is being communicated to them. Um, one of the things we're going to talk about is that the law spells out the content of the Ten Commandments in a variety of interesting ways. So it's very much related to that giving of the Ten Commandments. Was Moses real, or is this a story to teach something? And were the Ten Commandments real, or were they inserted to teach something to a people at that time? Sure. That's a great question. I'll punt a little bit on that. The short answer is that that question is vigorously debated. If you ask a dozen Old Testament scholars about it, you might get two dozen answers. It depends on what you mean by real. So um, there are some people, there are some people that would say that Moses is probably a creation of the Hebrews, that he's a, he's a work of fiction that represents the values of the Hebrew people, their, their sense of who God is, or their own civilizational priorities. There are also people on the other end of the spectrum who would say, not only is Moses a real person, he's um, the Bible is a very accurate historical record of everything he said and did. That would be a more literal interpretation of Exodus. I tend to try to split the difference to say that there was a historical figure named Moses who had a, a leadership role among the Hebrew people um, he's not, I don't think he's made up. For a variety of reasons, I find that to be unlikely. I think what we do see is, so the Old Testament, you can see, I talk about the human fingerprints on the Old Testament. So you can see that it's a record, it's a story about certain things, but it's also a creation of human communities. Um, I find that to be evident when I look at the text. I don't think that means they made it all up from scratch. I think they are reflecting on things that happened, but also in the process passing on their own faith in God. So I think it's in the middle. So I think Moses was real to answer your question. I also think the, the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, um, aren't, they're not a biography or a work of history in the sense of which we think of it today. They're primarily engaged in, the, in trying to point us towards the God they got to know. Does that help answer your question? Yes, what about the Ten Commandments? I would say, um, I'm not, so the first answer is I'm not 100% sure. I don't know. The second thing I would say is that I think the Ten Commandments are God's word to us, whether or not they were handed down from the top of Mount Sinai, exactly like Exodus 20 describes. 
So one of the things we'll see looking throughout the Old Testament is there's a couple different stories of them, of God handing down the Ten Commandments. So you get another account of the Ten Commandments being handed down in Deuteronomy. And it's possible that that says there was a real historical event that they're both describing. It's all po also possible that there's um, more than one account of it because they're trying to put different spins on it. But it's God's word to us. And I think we need to receive it faithfully and obediently, even, uh, so what if it, didn't, if it didn't happen exactly the way the text says it happens? It's still God's word. Um, so for instance, uh, this may shock or dismay some of you, you know, I don't think there's a lot at stake in whether or not the story of Jonah literally happened. So Jonah may or may not have been swallowed by a great big fish. He, there may or may not have been a miracle that permitted him to survive in the belly of the whale for three days. That's not, I, I think that's, we in the modern era, in the 20th century and beyond, tend to get real dialed into, did this really happen? And if it didn't really happen, it's not true. And I think the Bible, uh, um, the Bible often is not interested in that question. So the story of Jonah is God's word to us whether or not it actually happened the way the Bible says it happened. Now, Generally speaking, I think that's a, that's a posture towards Scripture I want to endorse. One of the things we'll see, you, you got me started talking now. This is a good question. One of the things we'll see when we get to the New Testament, so the New Testament is based on, is really based on historical events. So there really was a person named Jesus. He really did teach and perform miracles. He really was crucified. And we believe he really did rise again. That he rose again was certainly the testimony of the early Christian community. So, but what we also see in the New Testament is that, again, you see the human fingerprints. So the people who wrote the gospels are taking real historical events and rearranging them so in one gospel, this thing will happen here, and in another gospel, this thing will happen here at different points in the life of Jesus. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. Doesn't mean it's not a true word of testimony to Jesus, but we can't look at the gospels and without further ado say, this is exactly what happened in the life of Jesus. The Bible's God's word. Its purpose is to point us to God. Um, there are um, some things in the Bible didn't happen exactly the way they're presented. Some things in the Bible didn't happen at all, but that doesn't make it less God's word. Can I, do you, any of you have follow-ups on that? I feel like I might've just blown some minds. Processing. Processing, okay. So if you have other follow-up questions based on that, feel free to throw them at me now or later. So in general, on this point, I would say, the more you learn, the better it gets. The more you learn, the better it gets. So don't get scared, just keep going, it's okay. Um, okay, so we're back to how did we get here? So we're trying to get from Exodus to Deuteronomy. 
So the second half of Exodus is, is a shift from narrative to law. Then you get the book of Leviticus, right? Leviticus is the third book in the Old Testament. That's almost entirely law. Some moral, some ceremonial. This accounts for the famous difficulty in reading Leviticus. So how many of you have ever started out in Genesis and tried to read the Bible straight through? And how many of you got hung up in Leviticus? Several right, I see at least one hand, it happens. Um, Numbers, the fourth book in the Old Testament, by contrast, is mostly narrative. It's, it's a book of stories. It tells about Israel wandering in the wilderness. So Leviticus is law, Numbers is narrative. Then you get to Deuteronomy, which is the final book of the Torah or the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy means second law. So it comes from the words deutero, which means second, and nomos, which means law. And it is largely a further elaboration or instruction of the law after the first time the law is given at Sinai. Um, unlike Leviticus, Deuteronomy is basically a series of sermons. So at the beginning of, throughout Deuteronomy, it'll say, and Moses said to the people, and then it'll go on for several chapters. And it uses first and second person pronouns, I, you, I declare to you this day. Whereas Leviticus doesn't talk that way. Leviticus is um, not in that sermonic or hortatory form. So that tells you what to expect when you look at Deuteronomy. When you look at Deuteronomy, you're gonna find largely instruction in the law, but it's gonna be in a more personal or communicative key. At times, Leviticus can really read like a little bit like a user's manual or a, I mean, you know, a, a, a legal guide if you're looking at like the, I don't know, the code of conduct for uh, CPAs in the state of Illinois, right? It's a bunch of do this, don't do that, do this, don't the other thing. And it's very clear if you know what you're looking for, but it's also rather dry. Deuteronomy is a little bit more vigorous. Okay. Um, I'm hoping that all of you have been keeping up with the daily readings, so I want you to cast your mind back to last week um, on the, the five readings we had. One was from Numbers, the rest were from Deuteronomy. Um, and feel free to pull out your guidebooks and take a look at them again if you need a little nudge. Turn to your neighbor and note one thing that interested you or surprised you and one question you might have. So what interest you do, surprise you, what's a question you have? You should also free, if you're processing everything we were just talking about a minute ago, you can talk about that as well, okay? Turn to your neighbor, discuss, and then we'll come back in a second. Okay, why don't we come back together? That sounded like a really lively discussion. So who has a question or a comment about the assigned readings from Numbers and Deuteronomy or any other question or comment or wants to volunteer their shy Presbyterian neighbor? I, I'm just curious what the time frame is between each of the books. Sure. No. Not, not off the top. I can't tell you off the top of my head. And it does get complicated because... There's the time frame in which they depict the things happening, and then there's the time frame in which the books 
first circulated as oral tradition, and then the time frame in which they were first set down in writing. So generally speaking, the Hebrew scriptures are circulated as oral tradition for centuries prior to being written down. And when you go that far back in history, when you get back to 1000 BC, 2000 BC, you begin to get to the era where people were like inventing writing for the first time. So you begin to move from primarily, exclusively an oral culture to a culture where people had this newfangled thing called writing. And older people probably didn't like it because all the kids were into it and they thought it was making the world go to pot, right? Um, so one thing I can tell you is that the, the first Hebrew scriptures began to be written down around 1000 BC. And the events depicted in the Torah, for instance, right? The Torah starts with the creation of the world, but then it continues to very definite, to, to specific historical events in Egypt. There's a lot of speculation and argument about when those things could have potentially taken place. I can't tell you exactly off the top of my head. Um, I can dig into that and get you more information if you want. What else? Volunteer your shy Presbyterian neighbor. Go for it. The floor is open. This doesn't really relate to your questions, but I'm wondering how much of the law, quote law, Hasidic Jews today still follow? Sure. That's a great question. So not being any part Jewish, much less a Hasidic Jew, I can't speak with any expertise. So. Um, generally speaking, I think Hasidic Jews are more conservative and much more um, more strict. They, they would probably say more faithful in adhering to the laws found in Scripture. Um, my un so I think, for instance, you know, many... I think that some of that accounts for the distinctive dress of Hasidic Jews, right? So the side locks and the, the um, what, are the, what are the white pieces of fabric that come down off the belt area called? Does anyone know? The tefillin on arms there. I think these are all related to biblical laws. So um, in general, in contemporary Judaism, which is of course, you know, any world religion is a massively diverse phenomenon, you're gonna see some people that are like very conservative Christians want to adhere to a very strict interpretation of the text. You're gonna see people who are far more, um, people who are very liberal and people who are in the middle. Just an overall comment, and I don't know whether it's last week or this week's readings, but uh, Boy, it sure seems like uh, God doesn't have any patience. You messed up. Uh, <laughs> you can't go into the promised land. Yeah. Uh, you know, 10 spies came out and said, oh, my God, they're giants. We can't possibly conquer them. And the people said, well, we better go back to Egypt. And yep. then they got 40 more years of wandering in the deserts until all the people 20 years and older were dead. Yep. It's like, really? <laughs> yeah. That, uh, that's a doozy, right? Th and that's the first, the first reading from last week, I believe. I think it's Numbers 14. So, wait a second here. Yeah, Numbers 14. Hebrew spies enter the promised land, return with a report about the exceeding goodness of the land, yet the people are too afraid, and so God punishes them. Um, 
and uh, you know, Frank, your thing is, well, okay, that's not very patient of God, right? It's a kind of a harsh punishment. Um, I mean, as a human, we would say, don't worry, we got this, trust me. Yeah, sure. Well, and I mean, I think part of what's striking, right, is that one of the besetting sins you see throughout the Old Testament is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. So, you know how frustrating it is when you do something super nice for your kids, and then the next day, they say, you never do anything nice for me. Why can't you get me this thing? You know, and they've already forgotten the nice thing you did for them. So that's one of the besetting problems in, of God's people in the Old Testament, that God delivers them from slavery and chooses them out of all the people in the world and gives them his law. And then, you know, all of a sudden they're like, well, he just led us out here into the wilderness so we could die. And he show, or he leads them to the promised land and they're so close they can send in spies to inspect it and take a look and it's, lo and behold, it is a good land. And God is saying, I've led you here. I'm gonna lead you in. I'm gonna be faithful. And they say, no, we're too scared. As though God hadn't already delivered them against overwhelming odds once. And so I, I guess I, the more I study the Bible, I have a little more sympathy for God <laughs> and his lack of patience. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, it, there are challenges to that passage too, no question about it. I'm still having trouble with something you said two weeks ago. Um, I've always take, kind take of- Take a number. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've always kind of looked at it like there's a big division between the Old and New Testament in terms of um, how kind God is. And you said something about the New Testament or the Old Testament shows that God is compassionate too. And I, I may be jumping ahead a little bit, but you know, they, they start going even into the promised land mm -hmm. when it's time to, and God is making sure that they destroy whole civilizations down to every oh, yeah. man, woman, and child. And it's like, okay, why couldn't you conquer it without having to, you know, <laughs> destroy mm -hmm. everything? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, Right, I, I, I love that question because essentially you're holding me accountable to something I said two weeks ago in light of what we're reading in the Bible this week and next week. Um, okay, Dave, if there's still grace and mercy in the Old Testament, where's the grace and mercy in all this? Um, and there's a couple things to say about that. So one is something we're gonna see so our focus for this week is on Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is primarily law. Um, hold, on, hold on for 10 minutes till we start talking about what the law means and you'll see some grace and mercy in there. So we as Christians often approach the law as though it were this very onerous, burdensome thing. And in fact, its original intention was quite different. Um, in many ways, the law for Jews was already a sign of God's grace. So that's one thing. The second thing I would say is that there's often, 
Mm. Even when God's punishments are harsh in the Old Testament, there's often a little bit of grace smuggled in in ways you might not appreciate, right? Um, but I can't deny that many of the texts we're going to look at right here are, are, are challenging, especially from our vantage point as Christians. Um, and in the first in week zero, when I talked about having a Christ-centered approach to the Bible, I, was, I had passages like this in mind. So next week, we're going to talk about the Israelites and their entry into the promised land. And that's, that's a very challenging passage for me, right? Because there are precisely... We'll talk about this next week, but there are precisely those passages that you talked about where God commands the Israelites to wipe out everybody in the land. And men, women, children, you name it. And as a Christian, that's not, I don't think God acts that way. I have a problem with it being commanded. Um, And I think it is fair for us as Christians to say, we read the Bible through a center in Jesus, and that means we're going to interpret those passages in a very particular way and not as licensing any kind of God-authorized warfare. So when it comes down to it, you know, I think it is okay to um, hold every passage of Scripture up against the life and ministry of Jesus, and if it doesn't measure up, to, to let Jesus trump. I think that's faithful. But part of the answer is that we have to be, that has to be the last step in a process of sitting faithfully and letting the text speak to us, because often there's far more treasure there than we might think at first. I wanted to build on what you were saying about the forgetfulness, mm-hmm. um, but there's also a theme of <sighs> maybe hubris in a way, mm-hmm. lack of trust. Um, I mean, I think that the story of the rock at Meribah, that's Moses mm-hmm. tapping the rock when he's not supposed to, he's just supposed mm-hmm. to command it. Meaning, no, he said, I can do this better, I can do this carnival trick, and it'll look, make me look really great and look like I'm in control. Sure. And the same thing with the people coming back, the spies, that you've got these, 10 of the guys are saying, yeah, it's a really nice place, but, but we can't take on these giants. They're just too much for us, as if that was their problem. Right. And so God's like, you guys obviously don't trust me. And I'm going to have to show you that this is what happens when you don't trust me. It it does sound kind of cruel, but he's trying to drill that message home. Sure, sure. But isn't that part of being human? Isn't it part of being human to do what? To doubt or be afraid. I mean, why would God punish people just for their own human inclinations? Sure. Why isn't instead isn't of, it? Instead of encouraging them otherwise, I mean, punishment is a really yeah. Sure. Thing to do. Sure. Yeah. So the the question was, you know, isn't it human nature to to struggle, to doubt, to question, to have a hard time following God? Why would God punish them rather than encouraging them or coming alongside them and saying, "Don't be afraid"? That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I think within the context of Numbers and Deuteronomy, the answer is that, so remember, you know, Numbers and Deuteronomy, every single person that's part of Israel has walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. (laughs) You know, this is what the books tell us. And they've been 
delivered by the mighty hand of God. I, I think the, the divine frustration there is, is valid in a certain sense. And of course, in, within the Old Testament, there are, you know, there are plenty of times when God authorizes an even more harsh punishment, right? God might just wipe them out and start over with other people. And of course, we know that because there are moments in the Old Testament where God says, right, nuts to these Israelites, I'm gonna destroy them and start over. And Abraham has to barter and Moses has to barter with God as well. So even in the, the punishment strikes us as harsh, we have to be aware that there's something being restrained as well. So for instance, in the, when, when Leviticus or other books of the Old Testament say an eye for an eye, that strikes us from the perspective of the 21st century as very harsh, even barbaric, right? If someone's really advocating for a harsh, harsh punishment for someone, they say, well, an eye for an eye. In the ancient world, an eye for an eye was actually placing a limitation on the punishment that could be applied. If someone poked out your eye on accident, you were entitled to justice, but only justice. You could take that person's eye and that was it. You could not kill them. You could not chop off their hand because that was disproportionate. So although we no longer adhere to that standard as a moral norm or a rule of law in our society, nevertheless, we can recognize the intention behind it, which is, of course, explicitly taken up by Jesus and intensified in the New Testament. Sometimes I wish God was more patient and kind in the Old Testament. I think um, often there's more patience there than we might see on the surface. A few of us in here are, are studying Exodus mm -hmm. and Leviticus, and we are really studying God's temperament with the Israelis, and I've never really delved this deeply into it, and I have found God to be incredibly patient. Huh. So I was really, I've been really surprised at his restraint. Yeah. Um, and as for an eye for an eye, I know that in Dubai, I mean, I lived in the Emirates, they still do blood money. They will not do an eye for an eye, but if you accidentally kill someone, if you run them over, you have to play, but play, uh, pay blood money. Although when I was living there, and I don't think it's the same now, they would actually allow the family to choose hmm. what they wanted to do to the person who had accidentally killed their family sure. member. So it is still, it's still their culture. And I'm not talking about the Israelis, I'm talking about the, the sure. Arabs. So I wonder if it'll ever, if it will ever stop. Uh, that's interesting. Never, never having lived in that part of the world that I don't know a lot about cultures of the Middle East. Yeah, th there may be many parts of the world where um, ancient laws still function in a contemporary context. And there, you know, we're Westerners. We have a different approach to that sort of thing. Um, anyone else have a comment they really wanted to make? Okay. Let me um, talk a little bit more 
about Deuteronomy, and then we can get into to some discussion about law and what law is. First, in terms of literary structure. Every book of the Bible has a literary structure, and if you know what to look for, it will help you understand what you're reading. So the book of Deuteronomy, for instance, is built around four different speeches Moses gives to the people. And you can see this when you look through the book of Deuteronomy. So in 1.1, it starts out and it says, these are the words Moses spoke to the people. Um, then in chapter four, you get this introduction. It says, this is the law. So Deuteronomy is mostly law. No surprise, this is the longest section. Then you get two other sections. It ends in chapter 33 with this is the blessing. Moses, before he dies, like any good pastor or religious leader, he blesses his people. He gives them a blessing on his way out the door. So it's built around a series of speeches. We talked about Numbers 14. So it's worth noting that here in Numbers, you get two different two different stories about um, the Hebrews sinning in the wilderness. So there's one story in Numbers 14 about the Hebrews looking into the land and seeing that it's a good land, but being too afraid to enter in. That story is repeated in Deuteronomy 1. But then in Numbers 20, you get a slightly different story. That's the story Peg was talking about a moment ago about uh, the story of the water from the rock at Meribah where God tells Moses to take his staff and make water from the rock, and Moses strikes the rock, and there's a, a suggestion that because he strikes the rock without being told to, that this kind of angers or displeases God for some reason. So remember, one of the places we see the human fingerprints in the Old Testament is duplicate stories, or slightly different stories that are slightly different versions of the same story. So I just want to point that out because that's one place we see that. You get Deuteronomy 2 and 3. These were readings from the past week. So this is um, the Israelites traveling through the wilderness. They're not yet in the promised land, but they are defeating pagan nations that are on the way. In Deuteronomy 2, you get that troubling account of God saying, wipe people out, nobody should be left alive. That comes up again big time in the book of Joshua. We'll have a, a longer discussion about that next week, but it's here in Deuteronomy as well. Okay, Deuteronomy 4 through 28, the biggest section of the book. So they begin in chapter 5 with another presentation of the Ten Commandments. And then in chapter 6, you get the, the two great commandments. So these are the ones that Jesus talks about in the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, strength, and might, and your neighbor is yourself. Who knows what the Shema is? Can you, can you tell us what the Shema is? Let me bring you the microphone. Or give us your, your best rough and ready definition. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall worship the Lord your God. Yep, that, that's exactly right. So the Shema is, is a section of Deuteronomy 6 that essentially says, Hear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's only one God, and the God of Israel is it. And it's cheek by jowl with uh, the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbors as yourself. 
Yeah, so look in, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and following. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So that's a very important part of Deuteronomy. That's a big deal. Um, and then the rest of this whole section from chapter 4 through chapter 28 is the law. Chapters 29 and 30 are a new section in which Moses once again urges the people to commit to the covenant. Um, and then here we begin to notice something really striking. So in past weeks, I've talked to you about the, um, the idea of the deuteronomist. Does anyone remember that, does anyone remember that word? Not a ton of hands going up. So, good. Um, basically, one of the things you see here is that um, starting with Deuteronomy, there is a new tone in the Old Testament. And it's um, marked by this tone of um, looking forward to future audiences who will hear and read Deuteronomy as well as a striking tone of foreshadowing. So why don't you pull up that passage in your Bibles that's up there on the screen, Deuteronomy 29, 10, 10 through 29. Deuteronomy 29, beginning at verse 10. You stand assembled today, all of you before the Lord your God, the leaders of your tribes, your elders, and your officials, all the men of Israel, your children, your women, and the aliens who are in your camp, both those who cut your wood and those who draw your water, to enter into the covenant of the Lord your God sworn by an oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today, in order that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God, as he promised you and as he swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I am making this covenant sworn by an oath, not only with you who stand here with us today before the Lord our God, but with those who are not here with us today. So that's the first example, right? So the, in Deuteronomy, increasingly the law is aimed at future audiences, those who are not there with them. So I'm skipping a little bit down to verse 18, 29, 18. It may be that there is among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart is already turning away from the Lord our God to serve the gods of those nations. It may be that there is among you a root sprouting poisonous and bitter growth. All those who hear the words of this oath and bless themselves, thinking in their hearts, we are safe, even though we go our own stubborn ways, thus bringing disaster on moist and dry alike, the Lord will be unwilling to pardon them, for the Lord's anger and passion will smoke against them. So why would something like that be in Deuteronomy? So it's, it's foreshadowing. The prevailing scholarly theory, right, is that um, starting in Deuteronomy, you have a new author or a new source of this material, and it's coming from people who were writing at a later point in time, after the kingdom had been established, and after the kingdoms split in two, so remember that there's a united kingdom for a while under David and Solomon, and then it all goes south. So later the kingdoms divide in two, and then they really get into trouble. And there is a lot of pagan idolatry practiced by Israel. And there is a lot, there's a very 
glib and complacent sense depicted in those later books of the Bible that essentially says, we're God's chosen people, we're special, he gave us the law, we don't actually have to do it. <laughs> He's gonna be on our side no matter what. And so part of what the, the Deuteronomist, whoever is writing and editing this book of Deuteronomy, as well as the later books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, those kind of middle books in the Old Testament, that person is, is in the future and it's, it's like he's trying to retroactively insert warnings to his fellow Israelites and say, guys, wake up. God wants us to be his holy people. God actually expects us to do the things he's asked us to do. Um, and there's this very, um, so there's a, there's a strong sense of irony or duality here, right? Of both of a strong sense of commandment to, for Israel to be God's holy people, to adhere to the covenant that God has made with them, and also an ironic sense of, of course, some of us will not do this. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? So, so starting in Deuteronomy is the first book that we think the Deuteronomist wrote. And when you get into subsequent books of the Old Testament, especially when, um, in two weeks when we look at the kings, you'll see it there as well. So at the end of Deuteronomy, in chapter 31, Moses transfers leadership of the people to Joshua, his successor. And in chapter 34, God takes Moses up to the top of Mount Pisgah, which is also known in the Bible as Mount Nebo, and he does show him the entirety of the promised land, but Moses never makes it there. He dies. He's, Deuteronomy says he's buried in kind of a unmarked, insignificant grave, not in the promised land. Let me talk about the law. Deuteronomy is mostly a book of law, and we've been looking at Deuteronomy at a pretty high level. I've been giving you a 50,000-foot overview. We're going to start to drill down a little bit in the time we have remaining. I want you to talk about this question. When Christians talk about the law, what exactly do we mean? What do we in the church mean when we talk about the law in a Christian context? Not like police and lawyers, but like the law in the Bible. What associations do you have with the law, either positive or negative? So take a moment, turn to a neighbor, discuss, then we'll come back. Okay, let's come back. So, what answers do we have to these two questions? What do we mean when we Christians talk about the law in a religious sense? And what associations do you have with the law, either negative or positive? Well, I would say positive. Jesus said, love you and God is what he wholeheartedly, whole, and the first four commandments or so tell you how to do that, and the next mm -hmm. six tell you how to love your neighbor. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the specifics to fulfill what Jesus told us to do. Sure. Yeah. So Jesus definitely had a strong regard for those two, the two great commandments, the ones in Deuteronomy 6, 
as well as uh, the Ten Commandments. And of course, as Frank just pointed out, the, the Ten Commandments are essentially an expansion of the two great commandments, right? So the first table of the law, the first four of the Ten Commandments spell out in more detail how we are to love God, while the last six of the commandments, the so-called second table of the law, spell out how we are to love our neighbor. Jesus expanded it further. If you, if you look at a, uh, a woman or a man, depending on the case, mm -hmm. with less than your heart, you see, you've already committed adultery. Yeah. It's, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, he expanded a lot. You know, if you're mad at your brother, don't, don't come here and make a donation. Mm -hmm. Go make peace with your brother. Right. Did you think we should do that next Sunday and say, if any of you, we're going to take the offering now. If any of you have a quarrel with anyone, don't give an offering. Go and settle it first. Probably not a good idea. Probably not a good idea. Well, if Jesus comes calling, I'm going to tell him to talk to Frank. Um, no, so part of what you see in the New Testament is an intensification of the law. That part of Jesus' quarrel with the Jewish religious leaders of his own day is, is an inner Jewish debate about how best to live out the law. And part of what Jesus is saying is essentially, we've gotten really good at finding all the loopholes in the law, but we don't take it into our hearts. And that, that's actually a concern that's very close. The book of Deuteronomy would agree. Right? It would say, if there's someone that's practicing the law but isn't taking it into their hearts, shame on that person, because that's not what God wants. What else? So what else do we mean when we talk about the law, and do we have positive or negative associations with it? The only law that I have an issue with is honor thine mother and thy father. Yeah. Because of some of the parental concerns or abuse, yeah. things like this. Yeah. When you attack an innocent child, mm -hmm. I have problems with that yeah, one. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, and I think you're probably not alone in that regard in this room. So there's also this question of, you know, what do we do? There's always, in the law, they sometimes call them corner cases or, or boundary cases, where you've got a general, a general principle, a general rule, honor your father and your mother, 90 times out of 100, that, that's probably a good idea for children to practice. But in those 10 cases, oof, it's going to be really hard for those children to practice that. And what do we, what do, we do about that? That's a, that's a very great question. So part of what we see in the biblical laws is you'll get absolute commands like honor your father and your mother. And then in other parts of the Old Testament, you'll get what are like if-then commands. So it'll say, you know, it'll say don't steal, but it'll also say if a person is hungry and they take a few grains from your field, don't get mad at them. That's not stealing. So you see kind of over, over time a specification of particular cases. So, and in the New Testament, of course, Jesus says nobody get divorced. But then it says that in Mark, I think, and then in Matthew it says, don't get divorced unless your spouse commits adultery. And then it's okay. And then Paul will say, he says, well, if your spouse wants to get divorced, that's okay, right? So you can see a similar thing happening in the New Testament. So I, I, think, there's, I, I think there is room for godly interpretation of the general principle there, but 
very good question. I just want to um, talk about honor thy mother and thy father. We were just discussing that today yeah. in um, our Bible study, and the very thing that came up that Debbie was talking about, where what if you've had a difficult situation? Mm -hmm. And I found it to be a very interesting point that the Bible study that we're doing, the leader of the Bible study was saying, Jesus, uh, Moses was saying, when God was telling us, honor your mother and your father, she said, who was listening to that? It, weren't, it was not all the children. It was the adults that were right. listening to right. all of this. And she took it a different direction, and she said, when you are honoring your mother and your father and you're talking to grown children, you are doing two things. You are honoring your parents, but you are also modeling what you need to have mm -hmm. your children learn. And one of the women in our Bible study spoke up and said that her relationship with her mother was not good at all, mm. but that she has been taking care of her mother. And I had that situation in my family with my sister. And she did step up and take care of my mom and dad. And it is hard, but these two women, my sister and this woman in the Bible study, they're in Bible studies. So we are turning to the teachings of the Bible, whereas there are many people out there that aren't. Mm -hmm. So I think that it really doesn't address, it, it should be more understandable for us when we're looking at it through the context of the greater commandments through Jesus than it is for people that don't have the knowledge or the willingness or the ability to turn and study and see things from different angles. Thank you. Anyone else want to make a comment about the law? Go for it. Question. So the law, is it more for moral compass of us on earth? Mm -hmm. Or is it more God saying, obedient, be obedient and trust me? I think it's both. So what you see in... What you see in the Old Testament, so there are a lot of, there's a lot of ritual and ceremonial law. Here's how I want you to worship me. Then there's a lot of moral and spiritual law as well. Of, because I am a holy God, here's how I want you to live. And all along the way, the, it's God is clear, especially Deuteronomy, for instance, God is clear that the law is given for the flourishing of God's people. So God's, you know, the character of God is not such that his commands are arbitrary or capricious. You know, he's not saying, oh, I hate the color blue. If anyone has a blue dress on, stone them. That's not what God's doing, right? Um, and part of the importance of the two great commandments and the 10 commandments is being able to trace uh, um, many of those seemingly cryptic commands back to the commandment to love God and to love our neighbor. Um, let me keep going and talk a little bit more about law. 
In my experience, Christians often struggle with the law as presented in the Old Testament for a variety of reasons. So we've already talked about some of this. So the laws seem very harsh, and indeed the punishments prescribed in them are often quite harsh, especially by contemporary standards. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stoning. Um, there are other sorts of punishments that we no longer practice. Furthermore, as Protestant Christians, we tend to read the Old Testament in a certain way, and it seems natural to us because of long custom. We, we read it through the lens of Paul. We haven't gotten to Paul yet. Paul's a whole distance away, but he has a very particular understanding of the law, and there's a certain interpretation of Paul that's put forward by our forebears in the Protestant tradition, people like Luther and Calvin. So often, people will quote a verse like Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So sometimes as Christians, we're down on the law because we think that we don't need the law anymore because we have faith, or that, um, or something similar. The word, uh, let me back up. So does, does this, are you tracking with this? Does this idea make sense that some Christians are down on the law? And do, do you resonate with that? Have you met people that approach the Old Testament that way? A, f a few of us, right? So, the Hebrew word for law is Torah. And there's a, there's a trick in the Hebrew because Torah is used to refer specifically to the first five books of the Bible. So like Genesis is part of the Torah. It's also used to refer um, to God's law in a general sense. So because the first five books of the Bible are where you find the laws, it's sort of a, um, that kind of reference, right? So Torah means law. Unlike the English word law, Torah does not have an overtone of coercion or harsh necessity. So in English, we say, okay, my kid was getting out of line and I really had to go to them and lay down the law. Does that mean that I spoke sweetly to my child? No, it means I was stern and a little critical with them. In Hebrew, it's different. Torah can simply mean teaching or instruction. So if my dad is teaching me how to, how to play catch, how to throw a baseball, you wouldn't say, oh, stop being so harsh with your son, right? He's just teaching me something, that's, that's good. So part of the way we use the words is different. So the book of Proverbs, for instance, uses Torah to indicate the guidance a parent provides to their child. And I think that's a helpful way to think about some of what's going on in the law sections of the Bible, that it's guidance from God about how we are to behave. And most importantly, Deuteronomy and the Old Testament do not think in terms of gaining or earning divine favor by keeping the law. That's not an assumption you find in Deuteronomy. In the eyes of the Old Testament, God's law always unfolds against the assumed background of God's grace. In the Old Testament, the law always unfolds against the assumed background of God's grace. So put your finger in your Bibles 
and turn back with me to Exodus 20. So the beginning of Exodus 20, then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So um, the Ten Commandments come against the background of what God has already done for the Hebrews. So before God lays down the law, so to speak, before he issues his Torah, his instruction, he says, hey, remember who I am. I'm the God who freed you. And in fact, in Jewish communities, the first commandment is not Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment are verses 1 and 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that's so important to Jews that they put it in the, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments. Um, now turn back, look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Chapter 7, beginning with verse 7. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Verse 9, Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who maintains covenant loyalty with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Then verse 11, Therefore, observe diligently the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that I am commanding you today. So you see what I'm talking about there, right? So Deuteronomy 7 is not saying, hey, God isn't sure what he thinks about you. If you want to get in good with God, be really scrupulous and diligent about obeying these commandments. Deuteronomy 7 is saying, God didn't choose you because you were good and had it all together. <laughs> God's chosen you because he's faithful. Because God is faithful, therefore obey these commandments. Paul talks a lot about, Paul talks a lot, we cannot be saved by following works of the law. We, we, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That's 100% true. What I'm trying to do is add to that and say um, the idea, if anyone propagated the idea that they could be saved simply by following the Old Testament law, that's a very bad Christian idea. It's also a very bad Jewish idea <laughs> because it's, it's right there in the Old Testament as well, that it's not supposed to work that way. We, you can see another verse like this in Deuteronomy 9, verse 6. Know then that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to occupy because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. <laughs> I love that verse. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord to, your God to wrath in the wilderness. That's looking back to Numbers 14 and Numbers 20, the passages we already saw. For you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until this day. So, we see here, I think, a picture of the grace of God, that God is being faithful to the Israelites despite their own lack of faithfulness. Okay, another word about law. 
almost all the commandments are exposited in relation to the two great commandments, love God and love neighbors, and the Ten Commandments, which flesh those out and spell them out in more detail. So if you, let's say you're at the DMV and you're waiting for your number to be called and you say to yourself, okay, I'm gonna read some of the Old Testament laws. Maybe that's an implausible scenario, but just roll with me. If you read a law and you think to yourself, why on earth would they include that in the Bible? What, what possible purpose does that serve? Go back to the Ten Commandments. Go back to the Ten Commandments, because nine times out of ten, there's a reason that it's there. And it may not be the practice we have any longer today, but the underlying principle is usually one that we can agree with or at least respect. So, for instance, right, so... Um, the law has a lot to say about disrespectful children. And it prescribes specific punishments for them that we no longer adhere to. But the, what's the underlying principle? Which one of the Ten Commandments is at stake? Honor your father and your mother. And that's a, that is a principle. And of course, the underlying principle behind honor your father and your mother is love your neighbor as yourself. And so we can get behind those underlying principles, even though the practice, which is often you know, stoning the disrespectful child, is one that we no longer think is, is valid, and rightly so. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay. Let me give you some more specific examples. I'm trying to sell you on Old Testament law and show you the riches that are there. So this isn't going to be a hard sell. I'm just, you know, I just want you to know, it's amazing. Okay, let's see here. So, for example, look at Deuteronomy 12. The heading I have in Deuteronomy 12 is pagan shrines to be destroyed. You can see here what I've got written down. So, this relates to the love of God, so the first great commandment and the first commandment to worship God alone. And this is another place where we need to pay attention to the context of the Old Testament law. This is a work that's at least 3,000 years old. So syncretism, syncretism is blending religious practices between two different religions. So nowadays you'll see there are a lot of people in the Jewish community that are culturally and ethnically Jewish who also practice Buddhism. Have any of you heard of this? And they affectionately, with a twinkle in their eye, they refer to themselves as Jew-boos, Jewish Buddhists. So that's, an, that's a benevolent example of syncretism from the modern day. So in the eyes of the Old Testament, is syncretism a good or a bad thing? Bad, right? Why? They're, because they're, right, they're only supposed to worship one God. So the God of Israel is unique in the ancient world in demanding uncompromising loyalty. And so if you're a Jew, it's, you know, for the rest of the ancient world, all gods are basically the same and they're all kind of interchangeable and the more the better, <laughs> right? So if I'm worshiping Thor and someone comes over and says, oh, you should also worship Zeus, I might say, oh, sure, here's three gold pieces. Go and make a sacrifice at the altar of Zeus for me. I don't really care. 
The Hebrew God is weird because the Hebrew God is essentially saying, nope, I'm it. And in the Old Testament, I think it's in, like, it's compared to a marriage relationship. So God says, I want you to be faithful and monogamous with me the same way you are faithful and monogamous with your spouse. And if you're not doing that, guess what? It's spiritual adultery. So syncretism with pagan religious practices was a live option in the ancient world. And part of what you'll see later in the Old Testament is that in fact, this is what takes place once Israel enters into the promised land. There are still many non-Jews living in that part of the world, and sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, parts of the Jewish community begin to adopt their religious practices. And this, is, this compromises um, their worship of God, and ultimately, they're not loving God in the way they should. So that's one example. Okay. In Deuteronomy 14, you get a lot about clean and unclean foods. So this, this is another fascinating example that shows the, um, shows the mystery of certain parts of the Old Testament. So there, there's uh, several commandments about what you can and can't eat. For this commandment, scholars don't know with exact certainty why it was commanded. Um, the best guesses, however, all jibe with the sort of reasoning that we've seen. So some people think the commandment to not eat certain kind of foods has religious reasoning. So it may be that the specific types of food they are commanded not to eat are foods that are regularly eaten by other pagan groups. So, you know, um, imagine if there were a rival religious group that ate nothing but pizza, 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 pizza all the time, and it became an identity marker, right? Oh, you know those guys, they worship that other god and they eat pizza all the time, right? We can imagine a scenario in which another religious group might begin to say, whoa, 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 don't eat that pizza, because first you're eating pizza, next thing you know, you're worshiping that other god. So it, it may be that that is what's going on, it may be that there is a moral precept being um, referred to that not eating certain kinds of animals or certain kinds of food inculcates a respect for life. Or there may be a hygienic concern. It may simply be that certain kinds of foods were perceived as being unhealthy. In any case, you can see that there is a reason behind the law that traces back to love of God and love of neighbor. This is my favorite. Laws concerning the sabbatical year. How many of you know that word sabbatical? So, okay, many of you. So, sabbatical comes from the word Sabbath. So, if you've ever met a professor or a pastor who's gotten a sabbatical, that's where it comes from. And this one relates really clearly to love of God and the third commandment regarding the Sabbath. The Hebrews are commanded in Deuteronomy 15 not only to celebrate a weekly Sabbath, but a Sabbath year, a sabbatical year every seventh year. And during that seventh year, all debts are abolished. 
So imagine if our society did that, right? <laughs> um, I'm, I love this because you see the way that the Sabbath commandment is not an onerous rule that says all you, all you can do is go to church on Sunday and you cannot have any fun. It's a law deeply concerned with social justice and liberating people from their bonds. So if you are a slave in Hebrew society, the longest you can be a slave is, you know, six and whatever, six years and however many months. And then your master has to let you go. So I, I find it fascinating and inspiring to see that principle at work in the Old Testament. The Old Testament law and its relationships to our lives as Christians is still an enormous and complicated topic. Hopefully this helps make it less foreign and more comprehensible. I close with the words of Paul in Romans 7. The law is good and holy and the commandment holy. Thank you very much. I'll see you next week to talk more about this. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks to our technical assistant, Matthew Sunblade. To find out more about our mission and ministry, visit our website, knoxpres.org. You can join us for Sunday worship in person or online as well. Thanks, and see you next week.